Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today's conversation is about open cloud. And you might wonder, what the heck is an open cloud and why do I care? Aren't all clouds closed as far as I'm concerned? Well, they're not. And we've got Chris Saltis from Mist.io to talk to us about it. Ethan, what stood out to you in the conversation? We get talking about vendor lock-in, and this is a thing that I feel very strongly about, but in a conflicted way. I feel strongly in multiple directions for multiple reasons, Ned, and open cloud as a topic kind of factors into this because the whole idea is, well, wait a minute. I want to have flexibility and move workloads and do my thing wherever I want to do my thing, and these pesky clouds with their proprietary services that are all integrated are locking me in, and how do I feel about that? And I'm of two minds. I'm strongly of two minds, and it's really <laughs> strange. Anyway, we have that part of the conversation along the way in this. And our guest, Chris, was just fantastic fielding all of our back and forth. Absolutely. So enjoy this conversation with Chris Saltis, CEO and co-founder of NIST.io. Well, Chris Saltis, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Before we get into the topic at hand, first, why don't you tell the nice listeners out there a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, hi. Thank you for hosting me. I'm uh, Chris Psaltis. I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, Mist.io, where we are building an open source multi-cloud management platform. Uh, I'm an engineer myself who transitioned to more business roles, let's say. So yeah, I have some first-hand experience uh, with the infrastructure stuff that we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> really, really soon. Oh, that's good to hear. It's good to hear you're not just coming from the marketing land where everything is sunshine and rainbows and you've never actually touched a keyboard. <laughs> so uh, the central premise of this episode is sort of a move towards a more open cloud. And this is a term that I heard you use in, in a few blog posts and presentations. In fact, we were on the same, uh, not the same panel, but we were part of the same uh, set of presentations for uh, Turbonomics, uh, what was it, yeah. App on Cloud Summit? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, well, let's start with definitions. Uh, it, it could be a tricky term. What do you mean when you say open cloud? Okay, for, first of all, I haven't invented the term, all right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, I've shared it from uh, vendors, usually some sort of major public cloud vendor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the premise of... Um, of open cloud is um, a really compelling one. It's about helping you reducing or minimizing your cost for migrating off the certain cloud. So at, at least this is how I approach it. It's about helping you move away when uh, uh, this is needed. So, okay, so if, if that's your philosophy, because we are so going to have the vendor lock-in discussion here today. So that, that, that needs to happen. But, but yeah. why why do I care about this? What, what is the big benefit for me to think about cloud from this more open perspective? Uh, so the, the main benefit is that you're keeping your options open. Uh, things change both for your organization, but also in the wider technology landscape all the time. 
So, you know, maybe down the road, you will need to change something when it comes down to your infrastructure or your application architecture. And having an open cloud or using an open cloud uh, is uh, really important in those cases because it will allow you to uh, move to something else. Uh, so uh, from, from that perspective, it can be really helpful, like okay. an exit strategy. You're advocating using an open cloud, that is, go find a cloud product that is open and use that because of these benefits you get, as opposed to signing on for a cloud that would be, by this definition, not open and and then might lock you in. Yeah, yeah. Well, locking is part of the equation, but it's not the, the main thing, let's say. Hmm. Locking can be helpful at times <laughs> uh, because it, it practically helps you move faster, uh, especially in the early phases of, uh, of the life cycle of the workload or the application or whatever. But, you know, uh, locking is uh, good until something bad happens. And <laughs> at that point, it, it's probably too late to worry about it. <laughs> you just have to uh, jump right in and do something. Uh, so uh, what I... The, the way I'm approaching, approaching it is that, you know, if you have such concerns uh, when you're starting with something new, uh, it's good to keep it in mind as like a far future scenario, what will happen if something goes wrong. And, you know, in, in, in this context, it's not exactly about vendor locking, but vendor locking is uh, certainly a part of uh, the equation. Yeah. Right, right. When I'm building a new technology or designing a new application or infrastructure, I'm thinking about the choices I'm making at an architecture level. And some of those yeah. choices have long-term impacts because they're really hard to change once you've implemented them. Exactly. So, is there any cloud provider or cloud technology that you already have in mind that's doing it right today that leaves that door open for potential migration or changes in the future? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't think that uh, there is someone who is doing it 100% right. Like a, a classic example here is that every uh, cloud provider is charging you for egress traffic. You know, they're making it harder for you and putting a price tag on moving data. So there are, though, examples of services within clouds uh, which can be more open than others. So it's not like a binary state. It's more like a mm. spectrum. So some services can be more open than others. And in, in this uh, spectrum, you have to choose, you know, where, where you are comfortable with and uh, how can you manage this openness of uh, whatever you're, uh, you're using. Uh, so, you know, especially for large-scale public clouds like AWS, Azure, you know, that, the, the bigger the cloud, it's probably the more difficult to be more open on average, at least, because I, you know, they have like one million services. It's like uh, it's impossible to, for every service to be really, really open. There are there are some services which are inherently more sticky, like you know, IAM, for example, or something like that. For smaller players uh, with a smaller amount of service offerings, it might be easier, like for Lino, DigitalOcean, things like that. But in any case, you have to look at it on a service-by-service uh, service, uh, basis and not like cloud as a whole. It's, it's really hard to, to talk about 
the entire cloud being open. <laughs> right. It, it, it sort of sounds to me like if you're looking at some of the more, we'll call them advanced or platform as a service offerings from the major cloud vendors, those do tend to lock you in a little bit more. If you've developed everything for AWS Lambda or you've developed everything yeah. for Azure's Cosmos DB or something, it's going to be harder to move off that. But if you just stay on their IaaS offering and it's just yeah. you know basic virtual machines, that is easier to move off on, but you do miss out on some benefits. So how do you how do you decide on that trade-off? It's it's really hard. It's really hard. You know, there is there are no uh, really good answers here, and I've seen it going really wrong for many people uh, on both sides. I mean, uh, both like with the lambda example, uh, as well as okay, let's put it uh, uh, let's put everything on VMs, right? Right. Uh, so I've seen organizations, for example, trying so hard to avoid vendor locking that they're putting uh, VMs on top of those VMs, they're putting Kubernetes and, and like all of that for the future possibility of running Kubernetes on another cloud provider or on-prem or like in, installing some weird exotic application on the control plane level and, and without having any prior experience with Kubernetes, right? So like they, they're trying to do like from zero to self-hosted uh, Kubernetes on the cloud. But like in, in this case, it's not exactly a cloud. It's just like uh, somebody else's uh, VM. So it can go really wrong in both directions. What, what you need to do is, you know, check what are your priorities as an organization? What are the available resources that you have, the skill sets? and then adapt accordingly. I mean, it would be much simpler for the example that I uh, gave you before to start with like some, some sort of managed service where you don't have to worry about the control plane. Start breaking down your uh, applications in microservices, figure out how to build the VMs, how to uh, build the images, how to deploy all that. Uh, and then later down the road, and you know when the team and the workload is more mature, then worry about how I could move the control plane somewhere else, right? I think you made an important distinction for me right there that 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 jumped out, which is if you're going with a managed service like Kubernetes as a service or something, it's not necessarily like proprietary to the cloud. The thing that they're doing is the management layer, which is the part that is not super important to you early on. And it's not something you're going to there's not a whole lot of difference in managing it yourself versus letting the management, but you still maintain control over the kind of the, I guess, the customer control plane and the data plane of things. Is that kind of how you're thinking of it? Yeah, yeah, this, this is it. Uh, but, you know, back to uh, the initial discussion about uh, vendor lock-in. Right now, in this situation, you're, you're already locked in in two things, like the uh, managed service, EKS, AKS, ZKE, whatever, and Kubernetes itself. And even if you take out the managed service and you host it somewhere on-prem, let's say you're still locked in in uh, Kubernetes, right? So there's still lock-in there in some in some way. <laughs> right. we, we're saying locked in, right? But But are we locked in or are we just committed to a certain path for a given amount of time? 
So many of the technology migrations that I've done, we were locked in for some amount of time. And so the way to get out of that lock-in scenario was to build the new thing, whatever the new thing was, then migrate over to it. Now, I'm an infrastructure guy, so most of the things I've been, those are infrastructure-related. We're moving to new core switches. We're moving to a new storage array, whatever it is. And then so you, you come to this... I don't know, flag day, whatever you want to call it, the big change window, and we're <laughs> we're cutting over. It sucks. It was inconvenient. <laughs> there was maybe training involved, but we weren't locked in. It was just horrible for a few months while we transitioned over. Uh, yeah, so sometimes yeah, exactly. I feel like we use lock lock in too much, you know, like we're here forever. And I think we can be locked in depending on what the product is. But for a lot of things, it's more like it would just be super inconvenient to move, but we're not locked in yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think like, yeah, you're, you're right. Maybe the term is not very uh, correctly used to be honest. Like I, I approach the the lock-in term as uh, as a spectrum again, like as in the open cloud uh, situation, there, there is no real lock-in Never. There's nothing that's 100% locked in. You always have options, right? It's just a matter of how expensive are those options and how expensive it is and how uh, big of an effort or inconvenience it will be needed uh, to uh, do something else. Uh, so it can be like a very light version of uh, lock-in, but it can also be a very uh, expensive one. I don't know if lock-in or commitment or something else is a better term to describe that. But I'm I'm mostly approaching it from the perspective of, you know, what will it take to take this thing out, throw it away, and move somewhere else? And by the way, this is why there are no, there are no not no, but like there are very few uh, successful migration projects going on. That's why there are still mainframes running somewhere inside your bank. Yes, uh, yes. And... You know, like at some point you have you just have to do the math. Like, would it make sense to migrate off this platform or not? And uh, how would you and, go and, and sometimes the answer is no. Exactly. Yeah. There was uh, some government agency running, I think, a Social Security Administration application on some ancient Unisys mini computer. Did yeah. we migrate it? The cost to migrate it was astronomical, and the program yeah. was being phased out anyway. So we just left this thing sitting in the corner doing what it did and, and scrounged some spare parts just in case the mini computer died for some reason to keep it going. Because that was, in that situation, the smartest thing to do. Were we locked in? You bet. But there was an end to it in sight. So what was the point of migrating over? But I, I'm still thinking about the whole lock-in concept. I'm... I'm of two minds about it. I'm, you know, in the idealist world, I don't want to be locked in. I want to be able to mix and match, buy what I want, use what I want, get the best pricing and, you know, make those decisions. Practically speaking, that doesn't actually work. Uh, and uh, Ned, I think you mentioned skill set. You got people that know what they know and moving to something else, even if conceptually you... Uh, can get to that other vendor that offers the same service. The way that other vendor delivers that service could be so different. It can be a fairly significant transition to get your team skilled up so that you can use that. That's not lock-in, but again, goes back to that inconvenient thing. Then there's the issue of vendor synergies where you use 
more than one of their products and they all fit together real nice. And as long as the cage that got you locked in is decorated well, this ain't such a bad place to be. I don't think (laughs) I mind so much. So I I gotta take issue with that because I have used vendor solutions before that are supposed to all work seamlessly together and they don't. (laughs) It's usually fair. So I I mean, at least in my personal experience, I'm not going to throw any vendors under the bus. I'll be nice. But uh, in my experience, what what happens a lot of the time is it's a it's different product groups developing these products and b a lot of the time it's products that they acquired from another yes. company yeah. yeah and so the integration that is touted by the marketing material is really not there when you actually go exactly. to implement it it's you can see all the duct tape and all the PowerShell scripts <laughs> that are running behind. And it's, I, I think they changed uh, the header graphic and that's it. <laughs> Seriously, look at the executable name. Is it still the same executable name from like three products ago? Okay. <laughs> so I, I think that that can be a red herring. The idea that all the vendor products are going to work well together. That they can. I'm not saying they can't. But a lot of the time that that is not necessarily the case so it makes more sense to pick the thing that works best for you from a business perspective but i guess the thing that i I always get stuck on is when do you decide to make a change what what is the inciting event that makes you go okay this is no longer working for me i need to shift to a different technology or a different cloud or a different provider chris what do you think is some of the reasons you would decide to make this switch yeah, one obvious reason is uh, having your uh, CFO knocking on the door and saying, like, yeah, you know, it's time to it's time to move away from that. It's very expensive, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that that's a not not a good reason to move. But um, I think that you 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 understand when the time is right, as long as you're looking actively uh, to detect any um, any messages uh, coming your way. So there, there's no like recipe. It's about always being aware of the environment changing, the business needs changing, uh, the team changing, and uh, being able to uh, capitalize that and do the best that you can with whatever you have at hand or uh, whatever your business needs uh, are at that point. So it, it's, really, it's really hard to, to hit the timing right. It, you just have to be alert. I mean, that's, that's probably the only, the only way to do it. Well, you, you mentioned business needs changing and, and so on, but then also technology needs changing. Could be the vendor you're in uh, just is kind of falling behind a bit. They're doing rent extraction. They're not really updating the product much, and you see the new thing. Yeah. And someone that's in the competitive space is you. It's like, whoa! If we moved over there, we could, you know, save money or be more efficient or whatever the technological yeah. advantage is. And you really have an incentive to migrate. That, that's certainly a factor, and especially if you consider how fast uh, things are changing right now. So you know, uh, uh, an, exa- an example that I use very often is. We went from VMs to Docker and containers to Kubernetes to serverless and like 100 uh, different shades of that in between in like what, like seven years? Uh, When was the (laughs) original announcement of uh, Docker? Like seven, eight years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, and and this seems like a lifetime, but it was just... Just eight years. It's 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 probably within the scope of your medium-term uh, planning in a big organization. 
And, you know, contrast that to how long it took to go from the mainframes that we were discussing before to uh, VMs. So the, the velocity of uh, innovation in the infrastructure space is, is staggering right now. And I don't know what's coming next. And if you're not in a position to follow the next wave, the next big thing, uh, adopt and evolve, adopt and evolve, then you will probably lose the game at some point. So it's it's not so much about the technology itself, but it's more about the culture within your organization, mm. uh, having people in your team who are willing to learn, experiment, adapt, move forward, try new things out, and uh, also be business uh, uh, aware, like uh, what are the business needs? Do I do that just because it's cool or is it actually solving a problem for my business? So yeah, that's that's probably the only way I can think of where you can be absolutely future-proof, let's say having <laughs> like a, a strong team, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> having a strong team that can learn, adapt and move quickly. So Chris, this this is the day two cloud show. And very often when we're talking cloud, it's contextually what we mean are probably the big three public clouds, AWS, Azure, GCP. Yeah. As we're talking through this vendor lock-in stuff, one of the things that pops to mind is all of those big three public clouds have lots of other add-on services that, again, yeah. in, in theory, Ned, in theory, they all work together really well. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a synergy to be gained by using them. So are you talking, Chris, or would you suggest that if I'm a big three public cloud consumer, that I maybe don't leverage some of those services that would lock me in if I can avoid it and try to keep things simple so I've got more of that flexibility? Yeah, it depends how hard that could be. I mean, you cannot avoid IAM, for example, and that's <laughs> yeah. the, the the biggest uh, sticky point on all the cloud services, right? So it, it depends. It's it's really hard to tell. Uh, in some cases, it could be fairly uh, simple. I mean, instead of cloud formation, use Terraform or something <laughs> like that. Or instead of like uh, another uh, weird, very uh, cloud-specific uh, technology that has a, like, a really good open source alternative, just go with the open source one. I mean, the APIs are still there. There's no, there's no uh, reason to, to pick whatever a certain cloud provider offers. But in other cases, it's just unavoidable. So I, it, it, it totally depends on the case. Okay, so would you advocate for using an open source technology, even if it's a managed offering versus something proprietary that the, the cloud is built? For instance, I'm thinking of using Knative as opposed to using Lambda for your serverless, or uh, what, what's the database technology <laughs> that uh, that AWS kind of, I won't say stole, but they um, they, they launched <laughs> relatively recently. They they, they forked, you mean? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I think that you have to, to take one step at a time. That's probably the, the safest approach. Don't go all in uh, with uh, the latest, uh, coolest open source uh, project uh, that you've seen out there. Like, uh, take it one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And I would go back to this managed Kubernetes example, which I think is a really good one. You know, Kubernetes is a very strong platform, it's very popular. I don't know if it's needed like in every case that it's being <laughs> used for, but that's another story probably <laughs> for another show. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, you know, starting with your own Kubernetes cluster, it's it's a hard 
it's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. So what's what's the easier path to uh, running Kubernetes? Starting with a managed service, right? Uh, so there you have this combination of proprietary, let's say, platform, but a platform that's offering you value right out of the door and value over like a long period of time, maybe forever, uh, instead of trying to build everything from scratch yourself. And then, you know, who knows, maybe in two years from now, you decide to ditch uh, Kubernetes altogether, or uh, you decide to move Kubernetes on-prem to uh, for whatever reason. So, you know, it's... Uh, you you can take it one step at a time. You don't have to go all in with uh, something. To the K-native example, that's a much tougher one because you know you, you need to have a lot of things going on in the background to run your own K-native uh, stuff. So I I don't know. This is this is uh, harder. Right, right. I mean, to a certain degree, if you're using Lambda, you're probably writing the application in Python or JavaScript or you know whichever language you choose. You can port those functions over to a different serverless platform. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> in theory, in theory, in it theory. works. Like, uh, but then you, you, you uh, maybe this is probably the easiest part that you just described: rewriting everything or porting the code itself. But then you have the whole operational level, which is a totally different game. It's. Uh, Know, how do you deploy stuff? How do you monitor all that? How do you uh, do logging? Like it, it, it can it can be crazy. It's it's another it's a totally different world. We pause the episode for a bit of training talk. Training with CBT Nuggets. If you're a day two cloud listener, you are you're listening to it right now. Then you're probably the sort of person who likes to keep up your skills. As am I. Now here's the thing about cloud. As I've dug into it over the last few years, it's the same as on prem but different. The networking is the same, but different due to all these operational constraints you don't expect. And just when you have your favorite way to set up your cloud environment, the cloud provider changes things or offers a new service that makes you rethink what you've already built. So how do you keep up with this? Training. And this is an ad for a training company. So what did you think I was going to say? Obviously training. And not just because sponsor CBT Nuggets wants your business, but also because training is how I've kept up with emerging technology over the decades. I believe in the power of smart instructors telling me all about the new tech so that I can walk into a conference room as a consultant or a project lead and confidently position a technology to business stakeholders and financial decision makers. So you want to be smarter about cloud? CBT Nuggets has a lot of offerings for you from absolute beginner material to courses covering AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud skills. Let's say you want to go narrow on a specific topic. Okay, well, there's a two-hour course on Azure security. Maybe you want to go big, wide, all righty. There's a 42-hour AWS certified SysOps administrator course and lots more cloud training offerings in the CBT Nuggets catalog. I gave you just a couple of examples to whet your appetite. In fact, CBT Nuggets is adding 40 hours of new content every week, and they help you master your studies with available virtual labs and accountability coaching. Interested? Of course you are, so satisfy your curious mind by visiting cbtnuggets.com slash cloud and figure out if CBT Nuggets will work for your training with their seven days free trial. Just go do it. cbtnuggets.com slash cloud for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. The next big battleground that that we've seen looming on the horizon is the edge 
and and Edge Cloud. Uh, uh, we recently Edge had a really, is coming. I know we had a really good chat with <laughs> Alex uh, Marcham uh, about Edge Cloud, and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Is there an open cloud version of Edge computing? Is there an open cloud version of anything? I mean, why should it be something something so unique? <laughs> I, I've listened to the episode, by the way. It was uh, it was a really good one. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, I, I, there's no, there's no, there's no such thing. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. But this this is not specific to ads. Uh, like the the ads certainly has some different characteristics. Let's say when compared to the public cloud, which probably make the situation a little bit harder because maybe you also have to account for hardware and uh, rather special hardware or um, maybe you're just using a hyperscaler extension to the ads and you know ads comes in all sorts of ways so it's it's really really hard to uh can, can, to can look different on. depending on the use case and depending on who yeah. the customers are that are going to consume that edge cloud yeah yeah it's it's super hard. Like I I don't know that there I don't know if there will ever be uh, a very open solution about edge. Yeah, and that's there's a lot of confusion over what edge even is at this point. <laughs> it's so hard to. Put I, it. I, I don't I, I don't think I know. Uh, still, I'm I'm struggling with edge probably more than cloud. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, let's 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 um let's apply this to a potential like real world example. Right. Let's say that I'm a CIO at like a fairly large enterprise and we've got workloads running in Azure and AWS and something on my on-prem data center. And you're advising me, Chris, you're you're in my advisor. You've come in and you're ready to tell me, you know, what what should I pursue? Uh, I'm looking maybe two years into the future. I think any further than that might might be foolish. <laughs> but yeah, let's yeah. say I'm looking two years into the future. I, I want to make sure that I'm prepared for that future what would you advise me to do from a cloud perspective? Hire the best people that you can and let them worry about it. <laughs> 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 That's probably the only good solution that I can think of. But, you know, like jokes aside, like other than that, you really have to dig deeper into what are you currently doing and what is a top priority for your business, right? It's not about technology. It's more about the business. What does the business need? Uh, does it improve? Does it need to improve its uh, bottom line? Uh, does it have cash to spare and invest in uh, capital expenditures? Uh, uh, where are the customers? What are the applications? Are there any legal restrictions or constraints? Or you know, what, what's the situation like? And wait, wait, now wait, the hard wait, part wait. is projecting that in the future. What is this cloud and? capital expenditure of which you speak <laughs> oh you know it's it's uh probably you're not uh as uh as hipster i as i am but <laughs> <laughs> I, i've seen a lot of people talking about moving uh workloads uh, on-prem again so you know maybe uh some people will uh will pursue that what well, okay so so the Ned's question here, this scenario was planning a two-year time horizon. And Chris, mm -hmm. the answer you gave in that this consultancy role was basically says things are changing so much. You know, you jokingly said hire good people, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
And the idea being things are changing so rapidly to best position yourself. You need to be very closely in touch with the market, where things are at, what the product offerings are and how they align with your business so that you can even I mean, two, two years is not a long time horizon historically for IT purchases. Yeah. A lot of times you'd mm -hmm. be, you would be investing in on-prem and some of that gear would have at least a three, if not five, seven, or even 10 year lifespan. So to yeah. not be sure what you're doing over a two year lifespan is really speaks to how quickly the market is changing. That, that, that's the main problem. And ex exactly because of this uh, rate of uh, change, it's really hard to uh, be absolutely sure for a specific technology or something like like that, projecting projecting it in like two, five, ten years from now, uh, like ten years is probably out of the question altogether. But and that and that's why you you need to build this uh, internal, let's say, capacity and uh, culture of change uh, that's not technology related so much. Uh, obviously, like there are some technologies that are more favorable in cultivating this culture, like open source, contributing, uh, taking part into communities, things like that. But, you know, it, it all comes down to the people. Uh, the technology doesn't run itself. Doesn't run, it, it, it's, it doesn't run itself yet, right? But the people do. So you need to be absolutely sure about the team that you have. Well, let me flip uh, Ned's question kind of on its head and ask it from a different corporate perspective. Ned, you are asking from the more established company, CIOs, big plans, thinking for the future. Okay, I'm a, I'm a tiny startup with maybe 10 people building out software service and stuff. Should I be thinking about open cloud and being able to have that flexibility and move things around? Or should I just like go all in on AWS like everybody seems to and just hope for the best? <laughs> Look, I've been there. So uh, uh, in uh, in this situation, you're probably worry, worrying most about bringing food on the table rather than vendor locking, right? <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the situation is certainly different there. It's not entirely different, but it's a lot, uh, it's a lot different. Uh, and, you know, in the early phases, you, you're trying to prove that whatever idea you have in mind works. So you need to move fast. You need to iterate. You need to improve stuff. You need to change. But then what happens if, like... One and a half year down the road, you're extremely successful and uh, your serverless bill has reached like uh, 10K per month and you cannot really re-architect anything right now. Because at, at, at that point, this is your money-making machine. You cannot stop it, right? I'm I'm not I'm not saying that you should carefully plan about every exit scenario possible out there, but it should be at least like somewhere in your mind that, you know, what do we do when X scenario happens, right? It's certainly not a top priority, though. Yeah, you can get into analysis paralysis if you're trying to think of every <laughs> yeah. potential outcome. But I think you're right. If you're thinking, hopefully you're planning for success and maybe even wild success. So what's going to happen if if you do are wildly successful and suddenly your application does scale out to, you know, tens or, or, or hundreds of thousands of nodes, what does that bill look like? And are you going to be able to pay it for, with what you're charging today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. And that's like within the frame of planning two years uh, ahead, right? I, right. I, I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. 
and I, I, I didn't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, those were different times, to be honest. So you didn't have so many options and having so many options is good, but it can also be really hard at some time. Right, right, right. It's funny because if you think like maybe two years back, Zoom was not a very big company. And yeah. then something happened <laughs> and suddenly Zoom had to <laughs> scale up a little bit. Uh, and that's certainly true of things uh, beyond Zoom. I mean, like I see all the kids with their TikToks and TikTok was not, you know, a giant thing, but they've had to scale up tremendously as well. So you can be a runaway hit and that can cause you a whole uh, new series of headaches. Yeah, or it doesn't have to be just like this huge success because obviously if you're uh, TikTok and Zoom, you don't care about uh, anything else uh, rather than the success itself. Uh, this can solve everything. It's like a very good problem to have. Uh, but <laughs> right. it might just be that whatever customers you have have different needs over time when it comes to availability or uh, scaling or whatever. So it... It, it, it will change. Your audience will change over time. And uh, your application and your infrastructure should go hand in hand with that change. That's that's pretty much a more realistic scenario, let's say. <laughs> I feel like we're giving people an impossible task. Given infinite variables and an unpredictable future, both of your company and the technology, make sure you make the right choice now. You got it? Got it. Okay, good. <laughs> oh. well, let me ask you a more practical question, Chris. If, I'm, if I'm, I want to do open cloud, that, that, that feels like the right solution for me. I want to do that and maintain that flexibility in my infrastructure. What does that do as far as managing everything? Because uh, one of the benefits of cloud, the context here is less undifferentiated heavy lifting, doing management things I don't want to do. I can kind of push that on the cloud the deeper I go. If I go open cloud, does that shift some of that managerial burden um, back to me? Uh, not necessarily. And that's the, the good thing about the open cloud, let's say, uh, because uh, there are several open source technologies that are offered as a managed service right now. So it this takes away a lot of the management burden. Uh, again, back to the K8 example or containers as a service or the K native uh, thing or uh, whatever. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of options where you can go with an open source project and you can go on a rather open cloud service without increasing your uh, management burden. In fact, it's the other way around. If you try to self-host it, it, would be, uh, <laughs> it will be a terrible pain. Right. Though it seems like at a certain scale, sometimes bringing it in-house and managing it yourself does make sense because there's some benefits you could get when you're running at scale. Are you referring to Dropbox? I might be referring. <laughs> well, I mean, God. that is the canonical example, isn't it? <laughs> I almost feel like it's a black swan sometimes. So <laughs> we shouldn't go too far down that rabbit hole. But yeah, there, it, there definitely is something to... Uh, making that decision. And maybe what the bigger point is, you have to reassess on a regular basis. You can't just make a plan. This is the plan. This is what we're going to do for the next six months or the next year. You have to have a, a reevaluation every few months to, are, are we still on the right path? And maybe you are, nothing has to change, but maybe yeah. you aren't. And you have time to make adjustments before things get completely out of hand. Yeah, sure. And uh, as a workload or an application matures and the relevant infrastructure and your team, then this opens up more options. The more 
experience your people get and the more experience you have with running a specific workload, uh, then this might open up possibilities that are already existing out there and uh, you you didn't consider uh, consider them when you were starting. So yeah, uh, it's it's a constant uh, it's a constant process. It it never ends, and that's we, the beauty of it. Otherwise, everybody would be bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, we seem to keep keep coming back to the people. You need to have the right people in place. So, when an organization is trying to support this type of initiative, what type of person are they trying to hire? Are you looking for a cloud architect? Are you looking for a developer who knows a little about? infrastructure? Are you looking for someone who's really deep into storage or networking or something like that? Or, or is it all of the above? Like what type of person am I trying to hire for, for these roles? I, it's hard to, uh, to give you an answer here based on the roles yet that you uh, mentioned, because <laughs> it, 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 it greatly varies depending on what you're trying to do. Obviously, you know, having a strong skill set is a, is a plus, but I believe that the key to success is softer kind of skills like mm. capacity to learn, curiosity, or communication skills. These people will not work in a vacuum. They will work as part of a team. And having such qualities uh, in your uh, team is probably more valuable than having you know, great technical skills and just that. Right. <laughs> right. So I would I would probably prioritize those softer skills, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah. O- over like pure technical uh, know-how. Well, you, you say interesting that are you disagreeing? Because no, I, no. I actually I, I agree with Chris here. I, I like the point. It, it's almost like we've said, okay, the technology isn't the important thing, it's the people. And it's not even the technical skills of the people, it's the people. If you have people with solid soft, I mean, they obviously have to be, you know, intelligent and good at their job, but it's really about those soft skills and being able to deal with each other, being able to learn new things and being able to interact with non-technical folks that all that seems to take a priority over what technical stack you happen to be running in, in a public cloud. Yeah, because in this fast changing environment that we described, it ends up being a, a game of survival of the fittest. Uh, so what you want to do as an organization in this, uh, in this game is be able to learn, adapt, evolve. Otherwise, you will, you will die, right? Uh, so, and, and this is only dependent on people. It's not uh, so much dependent <laughs> on technology. Yeah, I think this is like an important thing for listeners to, to take for themselves is... If you're going to develop anything, develop those soft skills first. I I mean, obviously, understand your job and what you're doing. But if you're looking for a way to advance or move up in an organization or just improve what you do, work on those soft skills and and, and try to develop those, especially communication and working with others, as opposed to just grinding out the technology and another certification. And and these ones are the hard to find and uh, the hard ones to develop, right? Okay, I mean, cloud is not rocket science. <laughs> Everybody who's like reasonably uh, technical at some point will understand it. Maybe not the pricing model, but everything else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, no one understands the pricing model, not even the cloud providers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 
I guess the last thing I wanted to to bring up is how sustainable is th this effort that we're talking about to build the open cloud? Am I going to be working with all these community supported open source projects? Or is there going to be someone I can actually pay to to give me support? Because I know, at least from like an enterprise perspective, there's an expectation that you can pay someone, and when you have a problem, you can call them. Uh, so, <laughs> is that something uh, that's included in the open cloud that we've been talking about? Well, if your open cloud service is powered by an open source project, then you uh, will probably have to do both. And you know, all reasonably popular open source projects have some sort of enterprise behind them, uh, supporting them in a professional way. So it's not such a big deal. I, I wouldn't worry about that a lot. And, you know, part of this whole community engagement will also be beneficial for your own teams, your own team members, uh, because they will, they will be able to interact with uh, maintainers, maybe contribute some code, get to learn the platform they're using better, even influence its development, although this is a little bit harder, but yeah, it can happen. But in any case, it's it's certainly sustainable. We're not talking about like an obscure open source project by someone uh, writing uh, the entire code base uh, alone uh, somewhere <laughs> in uh, in the world. Uh, we're talking about more, uh, you know, popular and more popular and well adopted uh, projects. Right. I mean, aside from open SSL, which is like one guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, uh, the whole I world uses it. This, it this, it's more than one guy, but it, is, it really is like two people who maintain that. It's amazing. This, this, this is a little depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I think an important thing to, to draw out on that is, like you said, you can influence how a product is developed if you're more involved in the community and make it, you know, tailored a little bit more for your particular use case. Because I know that especially for open source projects, they're always listening to the issues people bring up. And even if you're not a developer yourself, you can log an issue or make a, a you know, a feature request. And if enough people do it, then that ends up in the product, uh, which is a virtuous cycle as, as far as I yeah, can tell. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a win-win situation for everybody involved, both the open source project, the community, as well as uh, your team uh, and your organization. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's something that's really, really exciting, and it gives you a new perspective on things. It's uh, I, I would strongly recommend participating in such uh, communities whenever, whenever possible. Not only that, but it keeps your ear to the ground about new technologies that might be coming down the pike that that aren't going to be a fit in three months, but they might be a fit in that magical two year two year horizon. Exactly. We keep talking about <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Chris, as we're starting to wrap up, what we like to do sometimes is have the the guest give us a few key take takeaways. So uh, do you have a few key takeaways for listeners today? Okay, so oh, where, do, where do we begin? Like from uh, <laughs> from things that we've discussed so far. Okay, so first, let, let's let's begin with the open cloud situation. You have to keep in mind that a cloud is not by default open or closed as the opposite. It's not a binary yeah. condition. <laughs> right. There are like 10,000 uh, 10, assays in between of those two uh, conditions. And in because of that, you have to figure out where exactly does this service belong in this spectrum, right? And then take one step at a time. 
<laughs> don't don't be don't be uh, planning for this don't be planning for this major migration of everything from mainframes directly to uh, Kubernetes. Take take it one one step at a time, and in each step, do your homework. Like uh, investigate what's uh, what's available. What can you do better? Learn, mm-hmm. adapt, and then you know this leads me to the final uh, to the final point probably, which is. It, it is a survival of the fittest game. Uh, make sure you have strong a strong team, both on the technical side, but but mostly on the softer uh, skills that we uh, that we mentioned, uh, because in the end of the day, this is probably the only way uh, to make sure that your organization will grow stronger over time. Awesome. Yeah, so I, that is. It. That's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> that, that was my key takeaway from from this episode. Absolutely. Uh, if folks want to know more about you or Mistio, where should they go? Where can they find you? Uh, so they can visit our website at mist.io. They can find me on, on Twitter as Sipsaltis. Uh, That's C P S A Sipsaltis. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, go over our blog at mist.io slash blog. Okay. Awesome. And we will include links into the, in the show notes for, for all that information. Well, Chris Saltis, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day Two Cloud. Thank you. I had a great time. And hey, listener, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you've got suggestions for future shows, you know, we want to hear about that. So you can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Just a little personal promotion here. I've got a few new courses coming out on Pluralsight. If you're looking to get the new version of the AWS SysOps as admin associate certification. Wow, that's a mouthful. I have some new courses that will be released at the end of this month. So keep an eye out for those on Pluralsight. Until next time, just remember cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.